This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3329 for Thursday, the 6th of May 2021. Today's show is entitled, Linux in Laws S0129. The one and only, Linux kernel contributor panel, and is part of the series Linux, in laws it is hosted by Monochromic, and is about 84 minutes long, and carries an explicit flag. The summary is, an eclectic panel of Linux contributors, discuss technology, anger management and other things. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever else fancies your tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mum! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back on a speaker in an open plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets, including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusted guide dog, unless on speed, and cute T-Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. Uh, This is uh, Season 1, Episode 29 of something called Linux in Laws. Martin, how are things? Oh, things, things are great. We, we, <clears throat> we had some aliens land, and they wanted to join the show, apparently. So really? Looking forward to that one. <laughs> show my co-host in which, <laughs> which I'm a little bit confused about, because we have this exclusive round of kernel contributors on a panel talking about, of course, Linux and kernels and stuff. We do, so indeed. Without, so without further ado, sorry, aliens, you have to wait. Just simply send a mail to gig at linuxinlaws.eu, or even better to sponsor at linuxinlaws.eu if you want to sponsor us. <laughs> and we'll sort you out right away so you can appear on a further future episode. And without further ado, as I said, let's get rolling and welcome the panel. Tonight we have an eclectic panel of kernel contributors around a virtual table. And the idea is to shed some light on the uh, on Linux itself as, as the biggest open source project on the planet. But before we go into the details, why don't we do a short intro round? Gary, why, why don't you start? Sure. 
So hello everyone, I am Dario, I uh, am from Italy and I live in Italy. I currently work for SUSE in the virtualization team and uh, I guess I'll say that I started doing kernel uh, hacking uh, some 12, 12 years ago and I was told back then by the benevolent dictator in person that what I was working on was bullshit, but uh, I'm still here. That's it. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, Mr. Jan Engel. Yeah, I'm, uh, as you might notice by the name, German, currently working and living in the US for 10 years or so. Started kind of hacking, I think around 2000. Um, at the time, I wanted to do some sort of uh, versioning file system. Basically, I wanted version control of the file system, which it's a horrible idea, but it got me into kernel hacking, and 20 years later, I'm still doing it about half my time. Wow. Okay. Yes. On to Aurelian. Sorry. Aurelian. I, 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 I watched the name. Aurelian. Sorry. Yes. Aurelian. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Cut this out. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, so, as the name suggests, maybe for some people, uh, I'm French. I uh, work for Suze as well uh, from Nuremberg in Germany. I uh, work on the SMB stack at Suze, so uh, I maintain the um, the Samba server, and I slowly migrated over the years or over to the kernel client to mount uh, remote shares. Okay, Dave, over to you. I'm Dave Finkler, um, German, living in France, retired. I've been hacking a kernel since I can't remember. My main uh, mission is to support the test and measurement drivers. So I support the uh, USB TMC driver in uh, the mainstream uh, tree. And then I support a whole bunch of outer tree drivers in the GPIB Linux package. Okay. Jacopo? Yeah, I'm back. I'm sorry. I, I kept dropping off. No worries. So it's my time. Sorry, I missed that. Yeah, sorry. But just, <laughs> okay. introduce, just introduce yourself. Sorry. Okay. Hi again. Uh, I'm Jacopo. I'm Italian. I live in Italy as well. And uh, I've been doing kernel development in for like five years or so. So I'm, I think I'm the newest one here, probably. I do mostly work in the multimedia subsystems for camera integration. So I do mostly driver development in the kernel. And I still find it very funny, even if I'm doing some more open uh, user space development recently. So it's kind of a mixed bag. And so, yeah, I'm still enjoying that, and even if it's not been too long. So I also sent my first patch to Greg with Thunderbird, and I was arguing with him that I was right, and he was wrong for like three or four emails, but then I'm still around, so I think it's a good sign. Okay, thank you. Uh, Luke. Hi. Yeah. So um, my name is Luke Layden. Um, I, I actually started on Samba. Um, this was 1995, um, and I downloaded um, uh, Slackware 3.1 uh, by walking in unauthorized into the Cambridge Computer Lab um, and um, uh, downloading it on 150 floppies. Um, then I did my first uh, reverse engineering, after that reverse engineering, I did my first actual Linux kernel hacking was um, uh, the HTC Linux, uh, pro the Xanadux project, well, reported 
uh, reverse engineered nine HTC smartphones and got uh, in a row and got um, the Linux kernel 2.420 something um, up and running on it. And wow. then later on ported um, to a Cirrus Logix uh, 90 megahertz uh, CPU two that was to two point six graphics to two point six kernel so that's about two thousand three. So, so quite a few um, long term <laughs> contributors among the crowd. Excellent. I think the only one that is missing is Carlos. If I'm completely mistaken. Uh, but Carlos doesn't seem to be around. So. Okay. Cool. Yeah. 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 Let's yeah. let's start let's start with a little bit of history. Given the fact that Linux ha that Linux has just turned twenty six, I think there's a little bit of history about this about this whole thing. What do you consider the most the the the, the most important achievement over this period of time? And anything goes here. It doesn't have to be technical. Can be G license change. Can be that the fact the fact that ARM entered the entered the architecture um, mix in whatever what was it ninety four or something, anything goes, the floor is yours. First off, I think it's thirty years. Um, Linux started in ninety one. Thank you. <laughs> um, probably the fact that it's running at all. As a, as a as a major contribution project of this size i mean i read a i read a piece about a couple of years back that this is the only operating system running right from tiny embedded systems run up to mainframes so i reckon the architecture choice uh would come to mind but again people may have different views on this i would say it was the opposite um for the per first 10 years or so of Linux existence, um, it was largely an x86 PC thing. And there was this NetBSD that was the portable operating system that claimed to be running on 100 different architectures or something like that. And then around 2000, early-ish, um, I ran the numbers and uh, realized that actually Linux by now ran on more systems than NetBSD. And well, that that trajectory hasn't changed. Linux runs on pretty much everything, but it didn't start out with a claim to be this portable operating system. It was very much written for x86. We we still have code in the kernel that assumes. Um, the the um, FSGS uh, segment stuff that we inherited from the 386 is still around 30 years later and it's gone now. Oh, it's gone. Okay. So it lived for a long time, and I think it was even used in other architectures, or at least the names were being used for things that were clearly not the same registers. Um, the the difference is more. Um, a make it work attitude. Um, the first part of Linux happened because uh, someone at DEC decided to send Linux a machine and Linux then had the spare machine sitting around and got it working. And um, most parts afterwards were pretty much, um, okay, we have this extra machine and let's just 
copy the x86 or PowerPC what, or whatever Arch directory and fix all the bugs that where this particular architecture happens to be different from the one we copied. And okay. then... That, that is very interesting. You... Sorry, okay, that is very interesting that you say it's, it's x86 um, uh, le um, legacy because from the... Um, when device tree hit, um, uh, that was very, very clear that people didn't understand the difference between an ARM embedded system where all the peripherals are part of the actual computer and it's a comprehensive system where, where they expected it to be PC-like where everything was self-describing, i.e. a PCI Express bus or a USB bus. Yeah, what? and in fact, if I uh, could say something, it's um, to me what's really interesting, it's not only the portability across uh, uh, multiple architectures that is uh, uh, stunning, it's also the different uh, uh, use cases, let's say, or workload, because uh, we may have a tiny embedded system, not so tiny embedded system like mobiles or supercomputers, which might even be uh, the same architecture sort of at the end, but they are very different use cases and uh, Linux uh, runs, uh, runs uh, on uh, I mean, all of them and it's all the same kernel, different configuration, sure, but it's all the same kernel. Do, do we have any Linux RT people on the call? Uh, I, I used to be one. Uh, they, they would, when, when I was told that uh, uh, what I was doing was bullshit, it was the proper sentence was real time is bullshit. And I was doing real time scheduling back then. I'm doing virtualization now. So, <laughs> no, I mean, it, on this very comment, I found this very interesting because if you take a look at Linux history, the Z architecture or, or 390, uh, 390X as an S390X support started as a hobby project in Böblingen where some IBM engineers basically simply took the kernel and in their spare time, so the law goes anyway, uh, see if they could make this work as a, I think initially as a logical partition on a mainframe system. And then marketing came along a few years later and the rest is history right up to Linux One, or what is called Linux One these days. And so I'm, I fully concur with the fact that, yeah, let's take the Arc uh, um, tree and let's see if, if we can get this running on, on our beloved uh, particular pet hardware platform. I think on the mainframe, um took a while for marketing to take over, but one of the, um, uh, what was he, principal engineer or something like that, um, fairly quickly saw this Linux thing and thought that was a good idea um, and gave, well, not precisely management support, he was sort of on the technical side, but he was the sort of person that no manager really wanted to pick a fight with. So effectively, the uh, uh, the small Gallic village that tried to run Linux on the mainframe fairly early on had support, which helped a lot. And so then when IBM realized how many systems they managed to sell because Linux ran on it, that also helped quite a lot. To what extent do you think that the portability of Linux is actually attributable to, to Unix? Because, I mean, even um, Dennis Ritchie and Ken Thompson uh, ported the first uh, Unix system onto um, IBM mainframe. 
I mean, operating system I, 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 is like being a, like being a really simple operating system, Unix, compared to you know like a VMS or um, <clears throat> VM three sixty three seventy um, that kind of stuff. The, where the file the, system and everything is part and parcel of the operating system. Well, on I, the I, on the sorry on the devices that I did the porting, it was for the Xenodox project. Um, we actually uploaded BusyBox. Uh, via initial RAM disk um, it, it, uh, over <laughs> over serial leak, believe it or not, um, using a tool called Handheld Reverse Engineering Tool, um, which you ran on the PDA under Wince, um, gave it the two files, the, um, the Linux kernel uh, and the initial RAM disk. Um, and um, uh, slowly over time, I worked out how to put SSH and X11R3 into the initial RAM disk in order to get graphical things so we could actually um, uh, uh, do some exploring and actually run applications on it. Um, and then finally, we reverse engineered the, the NAND flash driver and we were able to actually put things onto the, onto the, the, the device itself. Um, but yeah, BusyBox was, was key for that. Um, not so much um, whether it was run, it was actually Linux or uh, uh, POSIX uh, subsystem itself. No, interesting observation, and I think that makes it. This is what makes the panel pretty interesting because you all seem to come from different backgrounds. Since I don't have interesting stories that goes that back in the past to be interesting, but I I might have a question if I look at the landscape right now. Do you think uh, is there any other space in software that might not be covered by Linux development or uh, whatever brought to the, develop, to the development mentality Linux? Or is it more interesting the space which is opening, like with things like uh, Risk V and uh, open, open software hardware, basically? And Open Power. Don't forget Open Power. Open Power. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or Anybody still using this? Okay. Yes, me. Me. I'm developing a, an Open Power processor. Okay. That's a very good point. I think, you know, we're going to see more and more specific hardware architectures with accelerators and GPUs and stuff like that. Um, and yes, you know, will, will operating systems evolve to actually provide support for this? Well, funny thing, the Libra project which I'm heading is designed as a hybrid 3D GPU, VPU, CPU. Um, in a single in a single processor, it's actually extending the open power instruction set. Uh, interesting observation there, because you clearly have the counter revolution, for want of a better expression, in the shape of Android. Right? If you take a look at the at, the, at your typical Android spec, this is more likely that this is more likely than not as a, an ARM compatible architecture like Snapdragon or something uh, with blobs. Put on top of this, uh, in, in put on put on top of the uh, the architecture in terms of SOC support Don't as a system on a chip. <laughs> as a system, it's just let me finish here. As a system on a chip, but uh, apart from the kind of proprietary SOC implementations, this is pretty much AOS. Uh, a, 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 sorry, AOSP as an uh, Android Open um, um, Source project. There's not much deviation going on here. Never mind innovation. Any any thoughts on this? Well, I, I think I have you uh, got no. started, no? 
if, if I can make an observation, and that's maybe the perspective from someone who has worked for also middle-sized business, that when you choose to make a product with something, you get you get the BSP. And what I've noticed is that is that in basically maybe the last ten years you get an Android BSP, which is designed to work in ways that optimize the gives you space for doing nasty things and user space and distributing binary blobs and basically making the the kernel interfaces empty layers that just, that just drives uh, writes uh, values to register. Basically, I've seen that in for camera architecture there is really weird stuff out there. And I think that one of the damages that Android made, it's giving a lot of space for doing this kind of things, which have brought many people to work with very old kernel version or very crippled kernel version. There was a statistic from Greg that says like a Qualcomm kernel is like 4 million lines of code different from the mainline one. And I think one of the uh, important things that might happen is that give possibility to people that works with devices to work with a kernel which is close to mainline so they can contribute back instead of being old in the, that very past. And I think Android has a tiny, a tiny, has been a force, is the driving force in that. I don't know if my perspective is correct. Any thoughts, people? This reminded me. Um, uh, so you know, um, uh, Intel sold PX, the PXA uh, processor to uh, Marvel. That was um, the PXA series was um, ARM. ARM um, did a deal with Intel where they said, "We'll give you a license for a hundred thousand um, pounds because we're running out of money." Um, uh, uh, thing, um, but. Uh, they promised to provide modifications to that uh, to it, uh, the chip back, but they when they looked at it, they found that the ARM eleven was so bad that they started from scratch, <laughs> and um, uh, that was then sold um, to Marvel, who then bless them, when they released the finally released the Linux kernel modifications that they've been keeping in house, it was a tarball of seven zip files where they had the developers had just abandoned the previous one they hadn't done a single commit ever in any of the things they just taken whatever the latest linux kernel tree was and it made in tree modifications so no commits at all <laughs> it's just stunning so yeah um it, it starts some of the the, the, the disparate stuff of de of old kernels and dating back comes down to the to the um, the, the the manufacturers of the processors not knowing what the hell they're doing, and thank goodness now Lenaro started up. But yeah, this well, wasn't so, sorry, yeah. but this wasn't the cause for the device tree system, was it? No, no, um, that. That's another story which I looked on with dismay from having um, uh, uh, from the reverse engineering of you know nine smartphones. None of them shared any hardware, and I'm looking at this thing and thinking, what the hell is going on? Everybody's loving device tree, but when you've got a hundred thousand peripherals, none of which are different, and only, you're only, only going to ever see one Linux kernel device, device driver for it because that chip is a one-off for that product and it's going to go end of life. There's no freaking point in having a device tree. 
before before we continue, maybe for the one for, for the few listeners who are not familiar with Linux kernel, with Linux kernel source code source code contributions, maybe we should explain what a device tree system or what a device tree is. More than happy to do this myself, unless there are any other volunteers. Okay, essentially, it's a type of parameterization for hardware descriptions inside the kernel. As people already pointed out, Linux comes from an Intel background. But the idea is, and this is basically what was just described, with the advent of more and more SOC architectures and other stuff, the ecosystem became quite complex, let's put it this way. And the device tree was the idea to parameterize the descriptions of said devices to some extent. And this is what exactly what you see basically with the... Uh, I reckon with the majority of, of, of ARM architectures, uh, smartphones, embedded systems, you name them, more often than not, these kernels would have a an, an associated device tree explaining or, the, or defining, rather describing, the, hard, the hardware architecture, the hardware ecosystem running on. Uh, so meaning that you don't have to hard code these these parameters into the kernel, but rather supply them as a config file for want of a better expression. But sorry, do go ahead. Just a just a clarification for our listeners. Yeah, where the assumption is that it's going to be shared across multiple devices. Correct. But if 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 I mean, I don't know if you're aware of the 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 um, HTC Universal was basically a micro laptop with an embedded 3G modem in it. So imagine your um, uh, your 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 laptop in size only five inches in size. We think, of course, back in 2004, that was just amazing. Nobody had it, anything like it. But um, it, they ran out of pins on the processor, the GPIO pins on the processor. Bear in mind, it's got 110 GPIO pins. They then had to, you, um, uh, the high tech corporation had to do their own custom ASIC. We called it ASIC 3. It had 64 more GPIO pins, plus some SPI and I2C uh, and SDMMC ports and things. And they ran out of those GPIO pins and had to use the Ericsson 3G ROM communicating over the serial bus to use 16 more pins. This is a phone that had seven speakers <laughs> and audio paths. Um, and, but it was a custom one-off. There's absolutely no point whatsoever in having device tree for something where you've only, there's only ever one chip, custom, unique chip across the whole thing. Uh, Martin, do you want to take the next question? Oh, yes, sorry. Um, yeah, so we talked about uh, a little bit about the history and before we move on to the uh, future of Linux, how you, how you guys see it. Um, just wondering, why did uh, you all start doing bits of kernel development and what did you do before that? What was the motivation really behind contributing to an open source project? Who would like to go first? I've talked quite a lot, so I'm it was the proverbial itch to scratch. Um, okay, I had a problem. The uh, only decent solution for the problem was to write kernel code. So, okay, the kernel is just software. I uh, was a student at the time. I knew how to program software. How hard could it be? Um, turned out to be fairly hard, but eventually you, you go through with it. Excellent. And you've been doing it ever since, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. Is, is that how RPL started? Uh, if I have to mention one motivation is that, well, whatever reason you get into that, the quantity of code which is available and the average, how deep is that? I think when you try, when you start managing all of that, that gets really exciting. And if you ask me why I've started, I cannot tell probably it was some university project, but once you get that, I think I got stuck into this. It's it's like reading a lot of books every day, and that's if you if you enjoy this kind of things, of course, it's kind of pleasure and pain, but. I think the, the the vastity of Linux is what what makes it interesting. At least uh, I, I mostly consider the subsystems which I'm I'm into. I cannot tell the real core part. Maybe that's nastier, but uh, I think uh, it that that's why it's still funny for me at least. Yeah, I mean it was kind of the same for me. I would say I was studying at the uh, university computer engineering, but even. Since the beginning of studying university, maybe even before, I always wanted to uh, write system software, let's say. And um, so the chance came then during the PhD of actually doing uh, some Linux kernel development. And uh, uh, the, 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 yeah, it's, it's still and it's still. Yeah, that area. Sorry, you're a little bit quiet. Could you perhaps uh, talk a little bit louder or <laughs> turn the volume up? Yes, That's I'll okay. try Thank to you. do both. Should I repeat or uh, did you get? I think said? you're still I, very faint. faint yeah, yeah. Uh, just not turn it up a notch and please repeat, yes, because I could barely understand it. Okay, yes, I was saying that uh, it was. Okay, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Sure, uh, it was kind of uh, the same. Uh, it is kind of the same for me um, than what uh, Jakob said. Uh, the, the, the amount of stuff that it's there of. Uh, very different things. Uh, they, 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 they. It's what keeps me uh, still excited about doing it. I always wanted to write uh, system software, that's what I was saying, and the chance to actually uh, act on the Linux scheduler, it was uh, the scheduler back then uh, came during the PhD, but then uh, yeah, I still find it uh, exciting and I'm still there even if I changed uh, some systems. Okay, excellent. And I think uh, Orion, yeah, how did you start and, and why did you start? More importantly, what was your motivation to start doing Linux? So I have a bit of an unusual path, I guess. Um, I studied uh, computer graphics in university. So like 3D rendering, video processing, this sort of stuff. And uh, I couldn't find a job. And uh, I did this Google Summer of Code uh, thing on the Samba project. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, the, the I did pretty well I think and once I was done with the with my studies uh, so my mentor who worked at Suze at the time uh, sent me an email saying uh, no one like we don't have any good application this year would you like to apply again so since I was finished I, I was done with my studies I couldn't apply uh, you know I wasn't a student anymore so I said uh, yeah I'm not a student anymore but I'm looking for a job and uh, I couldn't find anything you know uh, computer graphics related uh, around my area so he said, uh, "Oh yeah, I'll you know just send your CV over, and I will take a look." And uh, the the rest is uh, history, as they say. <laughs> so I got the the job at Suze, working on uh, SMB SMB stuff, uh, mostly Samba in the beginning, uh, since that's what I knew. But uh, you know how so we have a lot of bugs to work on, and eventually we had the kernel bugs, 
related to SIVs, uh, which is the name of the module doing the uh, the kernel clients for SMB. And so little by little, I started working on uh, kernel bugs. And uh, now that's mostly what I work on. I don't really touch uh, the server side anymore so much. So yeah. Interesting. With the, with with twenty five to thirty years in the making, given the fact that Linux is already apparently on a planet called Mars these days, where do you see this going? Are you asking me, or no? I'm 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 asking the, oh. the panel in general. Okay. And of course, you're more than welcome to take this uh, to take this question. Um, oh, oh, I, 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 I forgot to. I forgot to say um, the previous question. <laughs> you could just go ahead. Oh, think, oh, all means. So um, I love that you were uh, working on the, the, the SIF stuff, um, Aurelian, because I was um, the person who did the network reverse engineering of the NT domains protocol back in 96 through to 2000. I um, think your name is familiar somehow. I, I think yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you must know James McDonough. Uh, we're James, talking uh, 22 Jim. years ago now, so um, my okay. memory's getting quite quite rusty on on that one. Um, I got into um, uh, the Linux in general um, because of the yawning chasm between the Windows and the um, and the uh, uh, and the Unix world. Um, and Samba was the the strategic uh, choke point for that. Um, but after things didn't really go well, because it's quite difficult. I, I don't know if anybody else has done any reverse engineering of d device dri device drivers on, and, and things, um, d reverse engineering of peripherals. Um, but imagine that you um, are looking at some network traffic and you're literally just copying and pasting the... You, you implement the client and send it at the remote server. So uh, then then you get a response back and you copy that and you put that into the server and then you get a client to talk to your server and then you go on to the next packet. So it's a bootstrap mechanism and you have no idea what the hell the traffic is doing. Um, and then you present that to the your the rest of the team and they ask you, okay, so now it's time for a review. Um, what does this do? I said, I don't know. <laughs> so what does this uh, packet do? I don't know. It's reverse engineered. All I know is that after 10,000 network packets, it just works. Um, uh, so it didn't go down very well, and I had to leave the team. Um, um, but then um, later, um, uh, I got into reverse engineering of smartphones, Wind smartphones, for exactly the same reason that I could see that um, there was going to be, with the, with the Wint smartphones, there was going to be exactly the same div divide between people who had Windows uh, Windows CE smartphones and um, anything else. So, uh, And then 2006, um, uh, Android came out, so I stopped doing that. <laughs> cool. So just to These days, um, go ahead. Yeah, just to complete the list of how do we get into... Um, kernel hacking or kernel development. Uh, <clears throat> for my part, I, um, I used to work for Hewlett Packard, um, a lot of test and measurement stuff. And um, I also tried to reverse engineer a driver for a, a GPIB or HPIB board from Windows NT. 
um, <clears throat> was extremely difficult because, um, you know, it was going by a, uh, a PLX, a PCI bridge, and then to an FPGA, which had to have um, the code loaded into it. And eventually I wow. managed to get um, information from the manufacturer as to what the code is to put onto the FPGA. And <clears throat> once I'd got my driver working, um, I decided to contribute it back to the to the community. And that's how I ended up um, becoming a maintainer for the GPIB stuff. I then bought myself a USB to, um, oscilloscope only to find that the um, USB TNC driver um, from Linux didn't support the IEEE 488.2 standard. So I um, <clears throat> implemented the missing code and contributed it back again and <clears throat> learned what it was to try and get past uh, the kernel police. That's fascinating. That sounds, yeah, that have, sounds... you, have you heard of uh, Glasgow, by the way? Yes. Cool. As, as a next question, how difficult is it to get past the kernel police? Anybody have any? Depends on the quality of your code. <laughs> okay. yeah. Well, um, I wanted to, to yeah. answer the last question regarding how do you get into kernel development. Um, for my case, I I started using Open Solaris back in the day, and they had very good documentation. But I have a cheap MP3 player. They have an F FAT32 partition, so that that I couldn't mount that partition on the um, Open Solaris. So looking at the kernel, I just uh, I realized that the um, the block size was hard coded in the kernel. So I changed that uh, to be able to to mount the the device. So it was most of a necessity to to go into the kernel development. But after that, I went to the I had a I had a job that was more sort of a trial by fire because I have little knowledge, I was just a student, and uh, my assignment was to port or integrate the AVI patches into the kernel that was 2.4 at that time, to be able to run COBOL, microfocus COBOL from Unix, Saldera Unix, into the Red Hat version that was 4.0. So that was a learning experience and and really frustrating experience using GDV, S-Trace, Trust, just to find out which code was missing on the AVA patch to make this COBOL binary work. And those years, uh, yeah, Linux didn't have BPF, EBF on those time, but Solari has the D-Trace. So yeah, I, I, I have experience on Solaris at that time and, and was kind of frustrated that I couldn't use D-Trace and uh, after 12 years, now we have BPF and all this observability that Solaris had on those those years, but we're really good now regarding those years. Okay, um, going back to my original question, uh, people, where do you see this going? In terms of it's it's the it's the biggest it's the biggest open source project on the planet. You have at least more than a thousand steady contributors. There's a guy seriously affected or potentially seriously affected by the bus vector. Uh, sorry, bus vector, of course, being if Linux is run over by a bus, 
of course, you, there are kernel, uh, kernel source code maintainers, but ultimately he calls the shots, if I'm completely mistaken, what goes into a kernel and what doesn't. Needless to say, he's very outspoken about certain quality issues, but that would be my next question. But most, uh, but let's focus on, on, on where do you see this going first? Anything goes. That's the million dollar question, I guess. Well, I think there's a, a, a desire to start cleaning the kernel, uh, get rid of the, the crafty stuff. Um, you know, we talked about uh, setfs, getfs going, um, you know, sort of hangover from the 286, 386 days. Um, they've just dumped a whole bunch of WiMAX code because there aren't very many WiMAX users. In fact, there are none. Um, so I think, you know, where's this going to go? We're going to need to do a lot of cleanup in order to, you know, get Linux or keep Linux as um, agile to adapt to new environments um, as it has been. I think that, that more than technical issue that, that there might be many, and I think also the push for removing old architectures, it may be due to that. It's how well that, that this thing will continue to scale. Because in, in the last year, there's been several talks and presentations about how maintainers doesn't scale, for example, and the number of contributors keeps growing, but some subsystem are really, uh, there is people which is bottleneck and that's not their fault. It's just the structure, which is, is not scaling fast enough, probably. And now to make it scale in a way which is uh, consistent for such things like it's what remains of a community because it's 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 huge and it's very hard to keep it together somehow. How to scale and how to multiply the the responsibilities, which means not only maintaining code but testing also, uh, and also how to make that. I think it's we're past the professionalism time where it's it's most it's harder to contribute to the kernel as a single individual. So most maintainer now have a paycheck for someone which has a lot of power in in Linux to take decisions, and also I, I, so I think scaling in a way which is uh, not letting grow organically, it's a key to keep the community functioning not, and be less independent and to to in respect to some pushes that have been in the last years probably. And that's, of course, as technical repercussion, like what you said, removing all the architecture. Nobody, nobody maintains that. There might be users, but maintaining an architecture, it's a lot of job. And now it's probably harder than, than 20 years ago. Yeah. The, um, the Linux uh, doesn't scale thread started, I think, in 2001. So scalability issues are nothing new. And in spite of the doom and gloom in 2001, we survived and we're still around. So I'm not that skeptical. Um, uh, so does, does anybody remember the uh, the Cambridge Linux uh, Linux uh, meeting um, where Linus asked all of the um, uh, kernel maintainers, the heads of the kernel maintainers, to 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 turn up, and there were 36 people at the meeting. 18 of them were ARM uh, uh, people, and Linus said. What are you all doing here, you ARM people? Go away and come back when there's only one representative for the whole of ARM. And it's like, oh, for God's sake. Um, <laughs> it's not recognizing that 
um, you know, at the time there were a thousand licensees for the ARM architecture. They're all different. Um, they happen to use the same instruction set, or actually they don't, um, because you've got ARM 7, 9, 11, um, the weird uh, Broadcom version, ARM, hard, ARM 11 with a hard float thing, um, and then you've got the Cortex ones. They're all completely different, and um, very sadly, Russell King, is Russell still around as the ARM maintainer? He's still around. Whether he's still around as the ARM maintainer, I'm not so sure. Yeah, because um, when I when we submitted, our team submitted the um, the patches upstream, um, we had done, we divided down into separate um, files in a subtree below the main ARM thing. This was when there were only 200 files in the, or 100 files in the ARM uh, 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 kernel device tree, uh, device tree um, directory. Russell asked us to submit it under the current structure, which to put everything in a flat, flat in one directory. And I was so embarrassed by this because it would have dropped 250, because we have the nine smartphones that we've been reverse engineering. It would have dropped 250 files into that directory and completely overwhelmed it. And I was, we were so embarrassed that we just didn't, didn't submit it. We didn't take it further because they didn't want to embarrass or overload Russell. And that, that I think connect with the fact that uh, for the perspective of being relatively new to the, to, to the thing and looking at it a bit from the external uh, as I feel myself and still wondering what am I doing here. Uh, I, I think 20, all the story about people, which is very close to Linux, and that direct interfacing with Linux worked when the, the system was probably smaller. And now you have people which is indeed core maintainers and core developer of Linux, which has direct access to uh, the maintainers meeting. But there is there is a lot of work that needs to be done in inside the subsystem. And there has been a push with the subsystem maintainers book, uh, share maintainership like DRM KMS is doing. Um, uh, so, uh, I'm, I'm not concerned about the, the the fact that core developer could scale and access to Linux and a functioning way of keeping it going. I'm more concerned about the fact that a lot of people has a lot of responsibilities and that uh, it, it's it's bad for their health in some time because there's people which is very overwhelmed and also um, it maybe hinders a bit the the contribution rate of some of some part of the kernel or make it less reliable in testing or blah, blah, blah. And I think growing the number of contributors, and, and, but also people which have smaller responsibility is a key for, for scaling in a way which is sustainable. And maybe, uh, maybe you see that happen, so you're not concerned. I think a problem there is always, um code review in a way. Um, Absolutely. You have way more people that have written some code and send it upstream, wherever upstream is. And now upstream, you have far fewer people that get to take a look at that code, um, yeah. decide to merge it, or more likely decide to say, you could have done this a little bit differently. And um, 
review is not that much less work than writing the code in the first place. Depending on the quality of the code, it may actually be more work. So um, you, you tend to have reviewers that are overwhelmed or then from the contributor point of view, review is not happening or it's not happening fast enough and um, I'm sending my patches and get no response. And um, getting people to actually send good patches where the review is very simple and eventually you build up trust and, oh, this comes from Jens Axbo, I will merge it because um, everything has been fine most of the time. And if it isn't, I, I complain loudly once and he will learn. Um, getting these people is important, but you get obviously far more people that um, do one kernel patch in their lifetime and never come back or do a few things or just don't have the quality or don't have the time they are willing to commit. And um, the bottleneck tends to be on the um, one rung up, the people that are reviewing code, the maintainers, and they they can spend 90 hours a week and still not get done. So there's an issue. And I think this will very well connect with the previous question. How hard is to get past the, the kernel police? I, I think the real question is how hard is get to be uh, the kernel police look at you <laughs> sometimes for contribution because there is a shortage of people doing reviews. And that plays a role something like, uh, I think it's still the imposter syndrome sometimes it's happened at, at the very beginning when you start contributing, you look at patches and say, yeah, it's okay for me, but who am I to, to send a reviewed by tag? Which is in, instead very helpful for the community to know that someone will look into that and maybe... And there has been a discussion recently, I guess, if... Uh, um, it, it, it's not worth to make it the, the, the review tags richer, like saying, yeah, I look at this part. I have no really idea what uh, what this part does, but that part, I look into that and it seems fine to me. And that might make it easier for people to feel like uh, not embarrassed to say, yes, I've reviewed that. I take the authority to say I've reviewed that, which I think plays a role in the fact that people may read code. But doesn't really feels like saying that that's okay for me. I take responsibility to say to say so because who am I to say so? Is there a particular reason why something like Garrett is not being used? I mean, will it is it just the sheer size that the whole thing would fall over or require a massive supercomputer to run? You mean Garrett, the 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 code review system, the patch review system, yeah. I think because that's opened a, a never-ending discussion about why people would not never give up email patch review by email, and uh, I'm totally. Fine. I do love that. <laughs> I do love that absolutely. But we've seen several, several times. We've seen some system moving to GitLab. Yeah, right. Email reviewing. Uh, I have used Garrett for other projects. Illumos is using Garrett now. Uh, FreeSB, FreeSBD is using Fabricator and OpenBSD just you use, send the patches to the tech list and you're done. But yeah, I mostly think that the current way of doing things today is fine. Maybe I'm just, yes, just do it. But I have used all the systems that for those for those kernels and I think is the review by email is, is, is pretty good. Yeah, I agree with you, Carlos. And the other thing is that, you know, there are so many trees that um, different patches are going to go into, depending on what area um, you're, provide, you know, you're submitting a patch on. 
it's not like your patches are going into one place. They'll go into sort of, you know, USB next and then into uh, USB and then into Linux next and then into Linux's tree. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, uh, automated code review system is not going to be able to deal with um, the diversity of trees and which tree feeds which other tree subject to which conditions, et cetera, et cetera. It would fall over and require a supercomputer to run. <laughs> well, if, if nothing else, um, if you wanted to make changes, you have to acknowledge that it's distributed and you need the ability to make local changes while still being compatible with the interfaces to the unchanged part of the infrastructure. So basically, feel free to use Garrett in your subsystem, but then send patches via email or whatever, or send pull requests to the next rung up in, in the tree structure. Um, oh, guys. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I mean, if, if Garrett ends up being a good thing and uh, everyone is just raving about it, it will spread. And if it's if people don't like it that much, it will not spread. It's very organic. Well, that's the usual evolution called the, the survival of the fittest, right? Which you, by the way, see outside the kernel in, in, in ecosystem as well. Um, changing tack a little bit. Not too sure how many of you have followed the last year's Linux Plumber conference because something very interesting happened there. A few people made a proposal to introduce a second programming language in the kernel called Rust. Now, uh, when I reviewed mm -hmm. the slides of the of the presentation, I came across a remark from from Linus himself saying that, and I'm 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 oversimplifying things, but entering C plus plus won't happen. Let's put it this way: there's an there's a very interesting mail on the Linux kernel mailing list outlining the rationale behind this. And as usual, Linus was quite explicit on this. But Linus actually blessed subsequently the potential use of Rust in the kernel as a safe alternative, let's put it this way, to C. So uh, given the fact that this is a major change or can be a major change, let's put it this way, after about almost... 30 years of programming in C, what are your views on the introduction of this new programming language, given the fact that this is mostly aimed at the moment, if I understand this correctly, at driver development and not kind of instrumental subsystems like schedules and so forth? I think it's we an interesting a... attempt, but um, it's Why still of a, at a toy state, I think, at this point. Uh, there's so many stuff to... To, to needed to make it work that uh, I mean it's unlikely to see anything interesting until you know for the at least two or three years I don't know couldn't concur more at the moment it only runs on 64-bit inter architectures you need a special C lang version for this you need a nightly installation of the Rust compiler and 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 a few other bits let's put it this way yeah, always but... going to need a nightly version <laughs> of the Rust compiler <laughs> but. Uh, I consider this to be the first step, as you rightly said, and given the fact that it took almost 30 years, because until now, pretty much, the kernel has been done in assembler and C, and that's where it stops. I think that's an interesting, interesting development, let's put it this way. 
especially given the traits that Rust has in comparison to plain C. I think it was it's surprising how uh, Linus was convinced to merge this. Um, I didn't expect it to go that smoothly. Well, yeah, uh, me too, at least to a certain extent. Then the entirely personal uh, opinion that I've uh, grown about this is that, uh, I mean, at some point, uh, uh, how to say, I mean, kind of a, a lot of people are, are pushing, not, not necessarily from... Uh, inside the Kernel community, but even uh, outside and uh, uh, what happens uh, outside in, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, matters to, to, to a certain extent. So multiple examples of that. So I grow the opinion that uh, since there is a lot of um, uh, attention of these, there is a lot of push uh, these, then at some point, probably fighting too hard uh, against something like this would uh, just have been uh, not only perceived as bad, but also uh, required a lot of effort, while uh, letting it in uh, in this way and uh, waiting uh, for seeing whether people will uh, ever be able to do anything useful with it, which no. perhaps yes, but perhaps no, was the I... least resistant path. Maybe. I, agree. I don't buy. I don't buy that at all. That's not how Linus thinks. If he thinks that um, the code is crap or the design is ugly or use any other curse words, he will say so very publicly. And if half the kernel community disagrees with him, but he still believes that he's right, he will not back down. So this is not based on popular opinion. This is um, Linus is at least somewhat intrigued by what Rust offers. Memory security in the set type safety and things, yeah. Whether he's entirely convinced, I'm not sure, but he's at least intrigued. Yeah, I think it's strange because, you know, he's been very adamant about how he dislikes C++ because it's, you know, very complex and other other uh, things. But uh, Rust is also very complex, I think, compared to the simplicity of C. It's, it's not that easy. Like, th there's a book to, you know, uh, as a as an exercise to, uh, so the book is about implementing linked list. It's a whole book dedicated to different ways of implementing linked list in Rust because it's not that straightforward actually to do it uh, properly, you know, with the, the language. So yeah, it's, it's really surprising, I think, for me. Well, that's precisely the reason why there's a component in the standard <laughs> library coming with Rust to implement linked lists. And, but I, I get your point. The thing is the learning curve. And I've mastered that myself a, a few years back, and I wouldn't consider myself a Rust expert by no means. It's quite steep. Full disclosure, I C was the third language I learned, even before starting university. And C has basically been been following me, let's put it this way, for for, for better expression, and so I'm not saying hunting me, but uh, C has been basically with me for my full for my for the better half for the better part rather of my professional life, and I still regard this as one of the, well, let's put it this way, not complicated languages, but you see, Rust has one big advantage. Even with the Rust compiler to generate code for you, code for you, you're you're rather there. In terms of there's not much left in terms of final QA of the code. Whereas in C, once you kind of convince the compiler to generate code, then the real fun starts. And yeah. 
Given the fact that I'm talking to current developers, oop, I don't have to explain what an oops is. So uh, this is my take on the situation. I mean, I, I agree I mean, with you, but uh, at the same time, I mean, C++ also had some arguments, uh, you know, uh, some ways to do uh, check, compile checks and, and things like this. Not, not as advanced as Rust, but still had some uh, some features for that. And uh, Linus thought it was, you know, too complex where... He couldn't, uh, I remember one of his arguments was uh, when you write C, you know that uh, a few lines you write, you, ha you have an idea of how they would compile to, you have an idea of the, the instruction getting generated and, and such. And uh, for Rust, it's like C++, you don't really know, one line could generate a lot of things, you have not really, there's no guarantee on that. So I think it's yeah. a very complex language. Yeah, yeah but Probably. I think that is really more complex than Rust. Because the is an operator yeah. overloading. I've known of people who, um, uh, why is my code running slow? It's in C++. It's because they did so many operator overloads and somebody yeah. helped them single step through it. And they were horrified of what they produced. I yeah, think but one I of think the... If, uh, is Rust right. alone in the kernel and that produces more people that could contribute, uh, maybe more drivers, I think that is a win-win situation for, for all. Means more drivers, maybe more laptops are supported and more more devices are supported. I think Rust is, is a good language. I I learned first C, then Lisp, then C plus uh, plus, then Go, then um, and learning Rust. I, I think it's a good language. It's, yeah, it's more obviously more complex than C, but I I think choosing between C plus plus and Rust, I, I choose Rust. I think one of the beauties of C is actually if if you if you if you're using it long enough, you pretty much have a good idea of what the assembly looks like once you code in, in a statement in C. Uh, that is not the case, as you just said, with C plus plus. Rust, I think, it's halfway in between. Let's put it this way. Complex or not complex? I, I think the safety argument could to make the real difference compared to C++ because it might, they might be more or less complex one of each other, but one guarantees you safety for some, for most of the, of the, the meaning that you can, you can assign to safety. The other one doesn't guarantee you that. So. Yeah, I mean, you just, yeah. so that's, that's a win. Absolutely. Exactly. You just have to take a look at the, at the, at the ownership concept, for example, in Rust. And I think with regards to technical depth, and these metrics, I would reckon, are, are come into factor, come into, come into, uh, play, play, play a certain role here, because essentially you're talking about how many million lines of code these days? The kernel itself? About last two, two, two million? Last 20, 20, 20 million last time I checked, but it's been a while. Okay. So I reckon it hasn't, well, the last couple of, of, of releases have seen a certain vanishing of subsystems, but I reckon it's fair to say it's still a complex beast and factors or metrics like technical depth. And if, especially if you refactor portions of such a large significant code base, then any little tiny help you can get from a language, from, from a, from a, from a development ecosystem like, like Rust and Cargo and all the rest of it, I reckon do factor in big time. Right. Well, it, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Cargo there. Um, that's one of my biggest concerns is that whatever is behind Cargo gets hacked. 
um, when I uh, I did a very comprehensive re review of uh, um, the the requirements for um, secure code distribution, I, I was it took about a month, and I found I came up with seventeen separate and distinct uh, requirements to to do the full chain of trust, um, and it is concerning me that uh, Rust developers are heavily reliant on cargo which downloads code from completely random locations that they've never even checked. Well, crates.io would be a go-to resource. You need to say you can reconfigure this. Yeah, but what if crates.io got, gets hacked? Um, um, this happened with... Um, uh, uh, so, or, or, or some location gets replaced, like um, Arch Linux um, had a package that was um, replaced by a GitHub user, a developer had closed their account. A hacker had registered that that same exact same news, username um, and created the exact same package and managed to get, get a Trojan uploaded into uh, into Arch Linux. Yeah. So it, it, yeah, that is of course the danger with centralized uh, package distribution infrastructures. But at the same time, it has happened to PyPy. And I think it took it, it took about what, seven hours for these, I don't know how many pairs of eyes to spot this and to eliminate this. Granted. It wouldn't, it it wouldn't happen with Debian because they, they use the, a web, a, a chain of trust to, to, to do um, GPG signing of the things. It would never happen with Debian. Well, feel free to submit a pull request for, for cargo, for cargo or for, for crates of IO here. <laughs> No jokes, De I hear you. Absolutely. De Devin has had other security nightmares that uh, shall not be named. So I wouldn't hold up Devin ah. as a shining example. <laughs> okay, guys. Okay, final final question, I reckon, because we, we have to close the show at some stage. Linus itself. Linus, of course, is a bit of a, of a, of a, of a colorful character. Let's put it this way. And if, especially if you take a look at something called the Linux kernel mailing list, you'll see quite a few rants. You'll see quite a few examples of very strong language. Let's put it this way. There was this hiatus thing where he went actually, um, out of, I wouldn't say out of business, but what's what I'm looking for into a temporary time. Let's put it this way. I think a few years back, came back. There were rumors on the street that actually he went into therapy. He admittingly did say about himself that he's, that he's coming from a dysfunctional background, but then he sees nothing wrong with being abrasive, outspoken, never mind insulting it at times. What is your view on this? Hmm. If I, if I may. So has anybody seen Mythbusters? Is anybody else a fan of Mythbusters? Um, I, I love it. I, I watch uh, every every eight months. I would watch uh, all two hundred and fifty episodes of a period of on a cycle. And one of the episodes, they had what is the effect of swearing on pain? Um, because you know if somebody hurts themselves, they swear, right? So they they studied uh, scientists did a scientific controlled study of whether if you swore with where your hand was in an ice bucket, which is a, 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 a known way to, 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 um, to induce pain, whether um, you will be able to tolerate 
pain more if you were swearing. And it turned out that you can. And I think that's so people are misunderstanding why people are swearing on the mailing list. It's because they are relieving stress. Uh, uh, and that's, you know, to, to, to be intolerant of people because they are, are doing so is completely misunderstanding the neurophysiological uh, effects of the, the, the extraordinarily uh, uh, complex uh, job that they're doing. I fully appreciate that concern. On the other side, there are basic social protocols which you violate when you become that abrasive, that insulting because that's normally not how societies work. Isn't there a a bit of responsibilities around that, about all the constant chatting that happens around? All Linus says, called this guy on the mailing list, and you go there, there's Pharaonix, and he gives the middle finger to to someone. Isn't that a bit responsibility, a bit too much gossip around that? what we care is actually technically work. Needless to say, I, I, I am trying to play devil's advocate, advocate here. <laughs> yeah, but not, not, yeah, I mean, in general, not that it's specific. I mean, in general, about the Linux characterization of that, yeah, the background, the feelings, and that opens a totally different argument than the, the, the mean, characterization of people. There were quite a few developers who left the ecosystem because of his behavior. If memory serves correct. True. On the other side, you also have developers that uh, have left or not joined various GNU projects because, quite frankly, the culture doesn't fit. And absolutely, um, without taking sides, um, you have a certain culture in a certain project, and if you are okay with that culture. Feel free to join that project, contribute, have fun. If you don't like that culture, go find a different project. Um, uh, yeah. I, if I can give you one perspective of that, I'm sorry, but I've been talking about it with a friend a few days ago, so I'm sorry to interrupt you. But I understand what you say, but he told me you have to consider people like in different cultures. When being scolded in public, it's like public humiliation. And so you have, you have a developer for, for, from a culture where that perceived being scolded in public or being insulted in a way which is, is not offending for me. Something like that hence his career. Especially in Japan or, or the Exactly, Asia. I was thinking about Asia. There were similar issues in the airline industries where um, exactly those different cultures um, where saving face was a big thing had airplanes crash because the co-pilot said things like, ooh, the weather looks bad, which would, oh, God, in I other cultures, in, in Lilith's culture would have been translated to, you're flying into a storm and you're going to kill us all. But because culturally it was not acceptable to be so frank, the co-pilot tried to warn the pilot in also many words and the pilot didn't get it and the plane crashed and 200 people died. And there were, I think, multiple instances of that. So now it may be bad for your career, but but it also has consequences to be more polite. And um, in the airline industry, people actively went to a more confrontational, it's bait as it's bait culture. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? 
it's it's harder to say for the colonel, but um, somebody else's career may not be the most important thing in the world. Somebody else's life might be more important. The quality of the product might be more important. I still feel you're right. It is important to recognize the responsibility of getting things wrong, especially with um, Linux now being used in embedded systems, mission-critical systems. It's so, also true that, that, that I get being uh, frank, but uh, insulting is really crossing the, the line, I think. You don't have, especially when you're communicating by text, you don't have, there's no need to insult, I think. Uh, so to oversimplify things, the more you swear, the better the code, get, the code gets, especially in embedded <laughs> systems. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm just oversimplifying things here. <laughs> I, I think it is really important to understand that when somebody is shouting like that, that they are releasing stress, and that it's a way of coping for them. Which is all fair and square. Don't get me wrong. Yes, I, I fully see that angle. I mean, this, I, I get this when it's happening in like when you're talking with your voice, but when you're writing, typing, I, uh, I don't buy it. I don't think this releases any stress by typing insults, especially after yeah. the fact. I don't know. Maybe Linus has a voice-to-speech system. It does review like that. <laughs> I've, I've done it. I've done it many times. <laughs> really. I reckon, I mean, he's he's not the only one, right? Maybe he's the worst, but quite a few people are quite, are pretty outspoken whenever I, full disclosure, I don't read the LKM regularly, but every, but every now and then I do take a look and quite a few people, quite a few contributors don't beat around the bush, let's put it this way, especially when they have a, a concerned voice. Okay. Any final thoughts? Before we wrap this up, no, oh, I think that that one was quite a quite, quite an interesting thorny thorny uh, uh, topic. Um, uh, I I do wish I would like to see that there was was a um, how can I put it a conflict resolution series of procedures that people would was were felt safe to call on um, in in free software projects. Um, that everybody was happy to to use. Maybe okay, through a more uh, democratic that... process, you know, voting or something. I don't know. The, well, the one I, I mentioned this. Um, uh, I did it um, um, with uh, JT on the open sources, open source voices one. Um, there's a website called crnhq.org, um, which has um, uh, uh, some re conflict resolution things. And there's also the Aldi Institute. You know the guy from MASH who helps people to, uh, scientists to communicate. And um, these these procedures, by the uh, processes that's by CRNHQ, anybody can read them. They don't need voting. It's, it's about empathy. And um, uh, people acting in a role of, of, of mediator, should they choose to do so, to, um, to listen to what the other person is saying. Um, I, I think it's a very interesting thing. And I, I do wish that more free software projects actually use this, including mm -hmm. them. Yeah, but but I think for, for, for Linus's case, you know, I mean, he's a personality that we've lived with for a very long time. I mean, it's not 
He's not surprising the way he is. And, you know, he has a model of the benevolent dictator and he's not going to show empathy with something he thinks is a bad idea ever. You know, so you just got to live with it or just, you know, find another project. That's my opinion. How do you, sorry, sorry to ask you a question. I appreciate it. We'll wrap up, but how do you square that when you see it as a duty or a responsibility to fix something? Fix as in you have a bug in your code or fix as in you have a, a bug in your culture? A, a bug in a culture or a systemic uh, systemic problem. Um, that I think, for example, with the, the whole reason why I got into Samba was to fix the yawning chasm between um, the Windows world and the, and the, and the Unix and Linux world, um, where, where people would get trapped running Windows and couldn't convert over to running on a, a Unix system, a Unix file system. Well, if, if you follow the discussion about the, the introduction of CFCR, I think it was mostly about that, moving from a code of conflict like the Linux kernel had to a code of conduct, which is punitive, and the other implications. I think it's part of this of this pro this process between trying to adapt the culture to be, uh, which not being insulting doesn't mean accepting bad code, but sometimes also saying like, no, this is wrong, asking why did you do that? It in reviews makes difference. And maybe people is sensitive, I know, and sometimes you have to, the feeling that people uh, take things too seriously, probably. But I think when the introduction of code of conduct and the removal of code of, co of conflict or all the debate that arose around the proposal communication standards and blah, 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 it's part of this kind of evolution and the empathy that you've been talking about, probably. Okay, and because we, 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 we had a kind of conflict, and I mean, the, the rules were already there, but they were not enforced, like you have not to do this, this, and that, and that was not enough, so it probably shows that something was not totally okay with that. A topic for another time, that one. is a whole, a whole episode a, yeah, of that one. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I know that. It's not the, the, the right answer for the last question of the show. But... Uh, yes, um, there will be a continuation of this episode. <laughs> You will you will so, get the invitation. No worries. Um, okay, Martin, you would like to to do the honor to to wrap this up. Yeah, I'd just like to say uh, great uh, contributions from everybody and um, a great bunch of experience that you all have in in developing Linux. And obviously, there's many many systems relying on your contribution. So great job everyone and thank you from myself and likewise from Chris I'm sure. Yes, thank you very much for participating and thanks again for participating Thank you for inviting Thank you, thank you. Well, That was a very eclectic discussion don't you think? Yeah, no, it's a great insight into the um, well, into the the biggest and longest, well, longest running, not entirely sure, probably longest running open source project, right? So, is there, anybody, is there the other one running longer? I can't remember. It seems I mean, like of course, Emacs. Emacs. Um, uh, Never mind VI. Yes, our favorite editor. Excellent. Indeed. <laughs> uh, what I found particularly interesting was the discussion at the very end about. Yeah. Swearing and lowering lowering pain levels and all the rest of it. Yeah, I, I agree that that's um, a bit of a common theme amongst 
Well, especially if, if the, for, for people who are considering uh, contributing, considering patches right on, on any project, uh, what are the uh, the levels of, of you have to, or the hurdles you have to overcome to do this and why would you do one if you're just going to be shouting at, um, to put it simply. And then, but then on the, on the flip side, you have the case of uh, a recent episode, which is yet to be released, <laughs> where, um, uh, you know, your code is public. And uh, by the way, this is a Rust episode coming up. Your code is public and people will dig into it and people will find holes in it. Therefore, which is the great thing about open source, really. So holes in Rust, okay. Not not in <laughs> Rust itself, but in the application of it. <laughs> I um, see. So, I mean, this yeah. is yeah, this is the usual dilemma, right? Because yeah. as as the discussion turns out, yes, there may be indications of swearing, lowering pain levels. I get it, but mm. on the other side, that violates basically basic social protocols. So mm-hmm. where? So you, essentially, you're walking a fine line between lowering your pain level and pissing off contributors, as in fellow contributors. And that's exactly what happened, because quite a few people actually left the project. Right, right. There was some Intel girl lady, uh-huh. details will be in the show notes, of course, who left for that very reason. And I can at least recall one subsystem maintainer defecting for the same reason. Because he was simply not having it with regards to um, the behavior of certain benevolent dictators for life. Yes. As the yeah. of the project. But as, as, as you put it, it's uh, a certain social protocol, isn't it? <laughs> um, I mean, just take a look at, at a self-confessed artist called Richard M. Storman. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's if, if people uh, choose to break those protocols, then they do so for a reason. Um, and as you say, maybe for their own reasons, but uh, then that from the contributor side, you have to consider, um, is it worth uh, this? This uh, I mean, Okay, you may not agree with it, but what are you trying to achieve with your contribution, right? So that is maybe the main thing that is important here, rather than, um, you know, uh, whichever way people communicate. Yeah, you have to be, be beyond that, right? <laughs> I mean, this is this is the reason why I suppose that many, many, many projects now, and you'll see this happening with events as well. Now mm. have something called the code of conduct, which explicitly outrules such behavior. Right. No, that's very sensible. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and and uh, I think someone made the point about um the fact that it's done via email right so so uh you know if if you swear in a moment when something happens and it's a reaction to a, a certain event or a pain or whatever it is then that makes sense but if you're doing an email it, it's it's um a thought process that you can easily reconsider or um not apply let's put it that way Plus the fact that, that, for example, the Linux kernel mailing list gets archived. So your rants, your swearings, your, your, your outbursts are there for eternity to every, for everybody to read. Mm-hmm. Not great. No, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but I, I think we had a number of people who, uh, well, actually we had the uh, people in both camps, right? That, Indeed. Yeah. And and most of them, uh, most of the, well, the panel were on, have been contributing for many many years, right? Apart from 
uh, a few relatively new guys, as in five five years, I think, something like that. But um, all the others have been doing it for many, many years. So they obviously, uh, you know, as I said, see beyond that or, or put up with it or whatever you want to call it. They're there yeah, for indeed, the, yes. For the bigger, bigger project, right? Uh, maybe they're just born to suffer. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> People, this is not. This is not. This is not how I see things. No, actually, I see both sides. But I think society, and this is a broader philosophical statement now, society has got to to the states where it's in. And of course, that is a, a subject for debate for another whole different show. Not by swearing, but rather by cooperating and facilitating and stuff. And. Yeah. Social basic social protocols played a very important part in this. Part in this, indeed, indeed. And yeah, with that, but, um, I think we are at the very end, right? Or any final passing remarks? Well, the final passing remarks, apart from that that, that last topic, I, I found it, um, yeah, in, interesting to meet people that have been <laughs> everything at that kind of level uh, since since the year zero, pretty much, and that's. Uh, Yep. Pretty impressive. And that brings us to the end of said show. Season 1, episode 29. The Big Colonel panel. And see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. This is the Linux In-Laws. You come for the knowledge. But stay for the madness. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license. Type attribution share alike. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for the song Salute Margaret, to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow, used for the segment intros, and finally to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice, used by the Dark Side. You find these and other ditties licensed under CC at Chimando a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.